But then this week we're going to kind of move to this idea of devotion from the heart. Or the question we're going to try to ask and answer this morning is, what does God really want from you? He's created you body and soul, and what does he want? What is he seeking? What does he desire? And so as we consider that question, let's go to him now in prayer. Well, Father, we want to begin by humbling ourselves before you, by acknowledging that you are our creator, our maker, our master, our sovereign. Not only have you made us, but you have recreated us in Christ. You have purchased us with his blood. You have filled us with your spirit so that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our souls are united to your son. We are yours. And now we ask that you would open our eyes through your word to help us understand what you really want from us, what you desire each and every moment of each and every day, so that we would walk humbly and obediently and faithfully before you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, in John 4, there's this beautiful story of sort of Jesus taking a break in Samaria, sitting beside a well in the middle of the day, and a woman going there, a Samaritan woman, to draw water. And they're going to have a little interaction where she's going to sort of introduce this debate about theology and places of worship and mountains and what Jews say and what Samaritans say. And the Lord's going to go sort of right after her heart by asking her to go call her husband to bring him, to which she says, well, I don't have a husband, to which she says, right, you've had four, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. And then he's going to have more interaction with her about what does the Lord really seek? What does the Lord want? It's interesting, even when the woman's going to run to the Samaritan village to call everybody to come meet him, she's going to say to them, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Isn't that an interesting statement? They talked for like five minutes. And she's like, he told me everything I ever did. What does she mean? Well, he got right to the center of me. Like in no time, just got right to the middle. Put his finger right on the nerve center. Like there's something about him that's, this is the Messiah. The one thing that Jesus is going to say to her in that conversation in John 4, 23, is the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Just that great statement on what does God really want from people? He's seeking a people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Meaning with the whole of their being in according to who he is and what he's revealed about himself and how to approach him. And one of the things it shows us is the heart is a place of worship. This is something that the world doesn't understand, that all people worship all the time, and that the heart is a place of worship. It's the most unavoidable thing about being a human being. You will worship. It's not a question of, do you worship? It's, who do you worship? What do you worship? Because the heart is a place of worship. Whom and what you love, or hate, or honor, or adore, those are all words that get at worship, and they matter a lot. And in one sense, our culture kind of teaches that you can't control your passions and desires, right? That's certainly one message you're going to get. You know, you you fall into love. It's something that happens to you. It's something that you stumble into. You cannot choose to be attracted to male or female. 
you can't choose what you're attracted to or not attracted to or anything else because it's sort of decided for us by our genetic makeup, by our biological makeup. That's sort of on the one hand. But then on the other hand, our culture strongly defends the right of every person to love who they want, to hate what they want, to love what they want, however much they want to love it, and then violently opposes the idea that anyone should tell you who to love and how much and how to love them. So it really is, those two legs are always in motion in the world around us. It's always a temptation, even in our own flesh, this, this leg of, okay, I can't help whom I love or don't love because of my body. And on the other hand, nobody can tell me who to love because of the autonomy of my soul. And so I'm not responsible for my life, but I am the boss of my life. It's sort of that message that's always coming through. That's why I think the chief commandment of the Bible is one of the most offensive statements the world will ever hear. Just that God would say this in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I think you just have to go, whoa. Who does God think he is? to tell you who to love and how much, with how much of your being. Because apparently he thinks that's part of him being God, being creator, being sovereign, being the maker of the universe, the one who sustains life, is he gets to tell everybody who they have to love and how much they have to love them and with what they're to love and how to carry that out. So he desires things from us. And I think every human being in the world needs to be interested in this question, what does God want from you? I think it's a great conversation starter for anybody in any situation, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in an airport. What does God, the creator of the universe, want from you? What do you think you owe him? And what do you think most people would say to that question? What do you think you owe God? What are they going to say? Most people. You can shout it out. Absolutely nothing. If there is a God, I don't owe him anything. So it's one of those questions that I think Scripture wants us to ask, wants us to answer. And so it gets us to this sort of section A here in your notes. And if you didn't get a copy of the outline at all the doors, there should be a copy of the ABF outline. What does God want? Well, firstly, the Lord wants our hearts and completely. Namely, he wants the whole of me and the whole of you, not just the sort of external acts of Christian practice, but an inward orientation that looks to him, listens to him, trusts him, loves him, desires him, honors him. We already looked at Deuteronomy 6, but consider also Psalm 51, 6. Where David says, Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David says, That's what you want. You desire truth right deep down inside me. Or Psalm 51 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God's saying, That's to him what worship is. That sacrifice, that's what he's after, is a broken heart, 
a humble heart, a contrite heart, a repentant heart, a heart that looks to him for redemption, that trusts him, that loves him. And so what does this mean? And you'll have sort of a little diagram there on your outline that kind of has that picture of a heart and then sort of those arrows coming down in those boxes of it means, okay, holy affections, holy cognitions, holy volition. And this is, again, just one way we can sort of capture sort of all the things that tend to come out of a human heart, that the affections and the cognitions and the volition tend to be most of what sort of gets expressed from the inner person. To love the Lord with all of our hearts means to love with all of our cognitions, all of our affections, all of our volition to be holy unto him in every way. To offer him a sacrifice of a broken spirit, according to David. That means to offer him yeah, all of our cognitions, all of our affections, all of our volition. That's why Jonathan Edwards is going to write religious affections. That's why you know, John Piper is going to write Desiring God. In books like this that are expressing and trying to clarify for followers of Jesus, here's what God wants. Here's what God desires. Here's what the Christian life is about. Not partial, but total. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What a statement. He looks throughout all the earth just to find somebody who he can strongly support whose heart is completely his. David was a man after God's own heart. Saul was a man after the people's heart. Saul was a man of the people's image, their choosing. David was a man after God's own heart. And notice how that wasn't because David just didn't sin much. No, he sinned often and he sinned big. It's just his heart wasn't given over to idols. His heart was always contrite, broken, repentant when he was corrected or when God confronted him. His heart always looked to God as his redeemer and rescuer. With, number one, cognitions, or A there, cognitions. So our thoughts, our ideas, our perspectives, our views, our beliefs, all those things that sort of fall in that category of cognitions. We tend to refer to this part of the inner person as the mind. And it's usually expressed in our thoughts. That's typically how we measure and weigh the mind. So what do we think about? What are our ideas, our views, our perspectives? Yes, Psalm 139, 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. So he says that. Now listen to what he says next. Try me and know my thoughts. He's going to see those as parallel. Search me, O God, and know my heart. How? Well, by trying me and knowing my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So knowing your heart means knowing your thoughts. And just as importantly, knowing our thoughts is knowing our hearts. If you really want to know your spiritual substance, just examine your thoughts. What do you dwell on? What do you obsess about? What do you muse over? What tends to capture your attention and your thinking? What do you yeah, consider most heavily, most often? It's amazing how many of us really do measure ourselves by how other people see us by just the feedback we get from everybody else. 
Everybody thinks I'm doing great. I must be doing great. Everybody thinks I'm doing terrible. I must be doing terrible. Yeah, David says, no, no, search my thoughts. Get right into my heart. That's what you'll see. Yeah, that's why, you know, Simon the Pharisee, when he has Jesus over at lunch with him, with all these other Pharisees and Sadducees, and there's a woman, an immoral woman, at Jesus' feet weeping. And as Jesus can say, he, she loves him much because she's been forgiven much. And Simon, it says, thought to himself, if this were a true prophet, he would know what manner of woman this was. And the implication is, and not let her do this. Then it says, and Jesus answering him. It's a great statement. He said it to himself in his thoughts, and it says, and Jesus answered him. In other words, we're always talking to God, whether we know it or not. Just when we're thinking, we're in conversation. Just usually we don't know that he's in the conversation. So when all the people come to Moses angry, they're ready to stone him and kill him. And Moses comes to God, and it's like, I can't take any more of this. And God says, well, don't worry, Moses. They're not mad at you. They're mad at me. To which I think Moses could have said, well, you could have fooled me because they want to kill me. But here's God that says, it's not about you, Moses. It's all being expressed horizontally, but it's all vertical. Everything they're thinking, everything they're feeling, everything they're doing, it's all about them and me. And so our thoughts, we're, we're always talking about, and God wants all that cognition to be his. And again, I don't want that to be something that makes us sort of anxious and nervous and sort of drive away from God, but rather, number one, see how patient God must be. That's one thing, right? He hears what we think about all the time. How patient he must be. The idea that Jesus hung out with those 12 disciples every day, day after day for years, and he heard everything they thought. And he wasn't just mad all the time. It's a statement on his patience, on his graciousness, on his mercifulness. He knows who he's dealing with. And he is most steadfast in his love, most tender in how he deals with us. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want this stuff from us. He does. He wants our affection, our loves, our passions, our desires, our attractions, the whole range of emotions. I think one of the reasons why there's so much confusion in the church today about same-sex attraction even is because there has not been a good theology of the heart taught in many churches for decades and centuries. So that this idea of attraction is just seen as this sort of not spiritual, not to do with God, not to do with the substance of our hearts. It's just kind of this neutral thing where really it's interesting, Jonathan Edwards actually said that one of the best measures of the affections of a heart is what you're attracted to and what you're repelled by. In, in unbelief, we will be attracted to the wrong things and in the wrong proportions or the right things in the wrong proportions and we'll re be repelled by things we shouldn't be repelled by. But when God gives us a new heart, when he joins us to Christ and gives us a new nature, well, now we're going to start being attracted to the things we should be attracted to and in the proportions we should be attracted and repelled by things that we should be repelled by. So he actually saw attractions as the purest measure of what you love. And so it shouldn't surprise any of us that when we come into the world as sinners, as fallen creatures, as depraved, that we're attracted to the wrong stuff or to the right stuff in the wrong proportions. And that the very thing that the gospel is trying to do, the very thing that the Spirit's doing over time, is completely rearranging all of our attractions. 
changing what we're drawn to and how much. Changing what actually repels us and how much. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is Asaph talking of God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And he's expressing that in the middle of all kinds of suffering and affliction and confusion and life going wrong. He says, I don't desire anything, Lord, more than you. God wants all that affection. And we'll get to some of the implications, but the more I think we grasp this, I think the more we'll pray. Because the more we realize, oh, I can't fix all that. Like, the more we, number one, realize, man, I'm a mess. This is worse than I thought. Like, I thought if I just straightened out some behavior in my life and sort of learned to just not do as much bad stuff and do more good stuff, that it was just all fine. And here's God saying, no, no, I, I want the depth of your passions and your loves and your desires. I want all your thoughts and your ideas and what you dwell upon and who you run to. And now we go, oh, this is, this is worse than I thought. Because we start realizing there's just stuff in there that's got a ways to go. So now I think our need for grace grows, our awareness of need for grace, our prayerfulness grows. I think our humility goes grows up because now when you see another believer and you see something outwardly that is not appealing we have to be very careful about judging based on that right (laughs) just as God said to Samuel I weigh the heart in other words they may look better to God than you do especially if there's a lot of self-righteousness in there as we'll talk about today there's nothing more anti-gospel than self-righteousness so oftentimes, when, if I'm judging another person who's doing something outwardly, that often to God, that is going to look worse. So I think it changes just how we think about what Christian maturity is, how we relate to each other. You have volition, our will, our actions, our decisions, our behavior. I love this. In John 4.34, this is right after that interaction with the woman at the well, the disciples are going to come back, and they're like, huh, what were you doing talking to her? What's going on? And then they're going to bring food. And Jesus is like, no, nah, I'm good. And they're like, oh, did somebody bring you some food? And to which Jesus said, my food is to, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. How many of you have ever thought such a thing? Like that idea, you know what? My food, what nourishes me, what I get strength from, is just to do the will of, him, of God just to accomplish his work. That that's how submitted and conformed to the will of the Father Jesus was. His joy was pleasing the Father. His nourishment was pleasing the Father. And so our will, our actions, our decisions, our behavior, none of this occurs in a vacuum. It's always toward God. And this is one of the reasons why this idea of sort of measurable harm to other people is not a good standard for morality or ethics. You know, this idea of, well, yeah, I'm looking at porn, but it's not hurting anybody. Okay, yeah, me and my girlfriend or my boyfriend, we're doing this, but it's not hurting anyone. Yeah, I know I sort of, sort of took that money from the company, but it's, 
it's like a Fortune 500, half a trillion dollar company. It doesn't hurt them. We're really what God's saying. No, actually, the measure is how pleased he is. Whether or not he's pleased with what's going on. We should aim to not do measurable harm to others. But again, that bar is dreadfully low by biblical standards. The real standard is, does this please the Lord according to his revealed will in my heart? So the Lord wants our hearts in full cognitions, affections, volition, all of that working in harmony, each aspect of our inner selves being entirely given over to the Lord in trust. Well, turn now, if you would, to Psalm 50. So we're going to kind of drive this point home. Any questions or thoughts or comments so far? We're just going to look at a couple of passages that just keep driving this home. This is what God wants. This is what he's after. So Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O my people, this is God speaking, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So he's sort of entering into this moment of sort of judgment, if you will, but not like condemnation to hell, more of a reproof and a correction. He's identifying himself. I'm God, you're God. It's like he's walking into the room with them saying, hey, let me introduce myself again. You're my people, I'm your God. I redeemed you. He says, I don't reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he's saying, hey, you're, you're at church at all the right times. You even come to evening service and pray. You're at the Wednesday evening prayer time. Yet you're sort of getting up and reading the Bible during the day. You're giving to the poor. You're dressing well. You're doing all that sacrifice, external worship stuff. He's like, that's not what I'm going to talk to you about. He says, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. What he's getting at here is, so, so they're going through all these sacrifices, they're bringing their animals into the temple, and what we'll see, and they're just kind of dumping them on the altar. Going, well, here's what he wants in their heart. They're going through all those motions, but they're just like, here you go. And God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Y'all don't think I need this, do you? Like, you don't think I have a shortage of cattle, right? Or sheep or goats? I'm not asking you to come bring this because I need food. He's like, I own all of it. You're not bringing me anything that isn't already mine. It's like, how many of you are dads here? And how many of you have kids that are like under 12 even? Or kids that don't have jobs yet? So every Christmas, and on your birthday every year, right, you get gifts from your kids that you paid for. Have you noticed that? Every, every Christmas, you open all these gifts to dad. And it's, okay, you're about to open something that you bought. Right? That's, that's where they got the money. And so in other words, you're clearly not opening something. You're like, oh, man, I'm really going to need this. Because if you really needed it, what would you have done? You go get it yourself, right? 
And so as you open up that gift of that new Lego Star Wars set, and your little six-year-old is just looking at you beaming, and they're like, Dad, I just knew you wanted this. I saw it in the store, and I thought, oh, Dad, you, we could put this together. We could, are you offended? Are you like, I don't, what do I have to do with Lego Star Wars? Or are you honored? Isn't it amazing is that you're like, oh, this is great. But if you open up that box and it's this key to a brand new BMW and your kid just throws the keys at you, there you go, Dad, I knew you'd want a car. Now what do you think? You know what? You can keep it. I'll go get my own. If that's where this is coming from, in other words, what are you after? What do you want from your children? Is it not their heart in it, in that gift? Because you don't need the thing. They're not adding anything to your portfolio. What you're after is them in it. That's what God's saying here. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. So that when you bring your bird as an offering, when you bring whatever it is, you're not bringing me anything I don't already know personally and didn't create and make and own. It says, if I were hungry, I, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. So that when they come with these offerings and they sit down and they cook some of the meat and they begin to eat as a symbol of fellowship with the Lord, of meal with the Lord, he's like, you don't think I'm eating too, right? I don't need food. I don't drink the blood of male goats like some false god deity of the Moabites. No, verse 14, here's what he's after. Offer to God a sacrifice of what? Thanksgiving. It's amazing how simple the worship of God is and how hard. He's like, you know what? I don't need all that stuff. If you could just be thankful, if you could just express thanksgiving to me, then that's what I'm after. So simple, yeah. It's like the one thing we don't want to give. Like it's so much easier just to go through the external motions with our heart far from him, to not really give that part of us. It's actually the clearest thing, the simplest thing to give, and the last thing we really want to give. Especially if life's hard. If there's suffering, if there's trials, if things aren't going our way, do we really want to enter into the courts of God with thanksgiving? And pay your vows to the Most High. When you say, here's what you're going to do in my honor for my glory, then do it. Don't play me as a fool. <laughs> don't act as if I don't hear and see. <clears throat> and here's the sweet part too. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. How will we honor him? By being rescued. Now, when you get into trouble, run to me. When you're in trouble, cry out to me. When you need grace and mercy, call on me. I'll rescue you. And that will bring me great glory, great honor. That's what he's after. So the nation of Israel, as is true of us and so God's people in all the ages, we tend to forget this. We tend to drift from this. We tend to make it about all these complicated sort of external things as if that's all the stuff that God wants. 
when what he's really after is, is the heart. A heart that trusts and honors the Lord and his word. A heart that longs to obey the Lord and his word. Yeah, turn to 1 Samuel 15. There's another passage that will hammer this home. Verses 17 through 23, 1 Samuel 15. Where God had commanded Saul to go and wipe out the Amalekites as a judgment upon them for the way they were attacking Israel when Israel was journeying toward the land. This wasn't about vengeance. This wasn't about Israel evening the, evening the score. This was about vindicating God's name. Because the Amalekites had blatantly, publicly reviled and despised the name of Yahweh. So God's like, all right, Saul, I'm sending you in Israel to go wipe them out as a statement to the world that I'm holy. And so, of course, Saul doesn't. He's supposed to devote everybody and all the livestock, everything, to destruction. And then Saul comes, or then Samuel comes to Saul and the people, remember, and he's walking through and he's just looking around at all these animals from the Amalekites at all this stuff that was supposed to be devoted to destruction. And here's what Samuel says to Saul. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. This is a gift. God gave this to you. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you, I love this word, pounce on the spoil like, like a bunch of coyotes, just pounced on it and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what he calls it. Why didn't you obey his voice? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do evil? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. It really is scary how we can do this. Like see things and justify things and assume things are okay when they are so far from what God actually asked. And again, that's, that should make us pray all the more. Lord, oh my goodness, please give grace. Please help me see and understand and comprehend what you're actually asking, what it means to love you, follow you, serve you from the heart. Because again, as we'll see, when he doesn't have our heart, then we can justify almost anything, and in our eyes it will look righteous. It will sound righteous. But the people took the spoil. So it's not me. I realize there's some spoil, sheep and oxen, but I didn't do that. That's the people. Go talk to them. Which, again, there's just a natural deflection of the heart, right? Adam, did you eat the fruit? Well, talk to her. The woman you gave me. So it's y'all's thing, not my thing. Like, Aaron, what did this people do to you that you would make this golden calf? What does he say? I mean, I just threw all this gold in the furnace and out came this calf. He actually said that. It actually came out of his mouth. Right? We all have these, these ways in which we have plausible deniability in our own mind, we think. And do not realize how ridiculous it sounds in heaven. Yeah, I just threw in the gold, out came a calf. Yeah, no, I did everything fine. It's the people that took the spoil. The best of the things devoted to destruction. To sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Notice how he even baptizes it in some religious motivation. 
yeah, we, we kept some stuff back, but that's for the Lord too. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Better to obey, or behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, just presuming that whatever you want to do, whatever you think, feel, whatever you want to do is just fine and that God will be okay with it. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And what is going to be a theme of Saul's life is that God didn't really have his heart. This wasn't about just external stuff. This is that when God spoke, Samuel or Saul didn't really listen, didn't really get in there. His desire wasn't really to please the Lord. It was to keep everybody happy with him, all the people. And so much of Saul's stumbling is fearing people, not God, wanting their praise and approval, not the pleasure of God. So what does the Lord want? He wants our hearts. Any thoughts, comments, questions? about any of this so far? And as a result, number two, the Lord wants our bodies and also completely. Because the fact that the Lord wants our hearts does not mean he does not want our bodies. But as we looked at even in last week's session, there exists this essential unity between body and soul that just can't be separated. And so our devotion to the Lord will express itself through our bodies. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Or in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's a remarkable statement. That the Spirit of God, when he gives us a new heart, heart to repent and believe, he actually joins us in one spirit to Jesus Christ. And for that reason, he says, so flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What does that mean? Well, he explains it. Or do you not know that your temple or your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So sexual immorality sins against the divine use of that body. What God has redeemed and purchased to be a temple of the Holy Spirit is being used as a temple for idols. You are not your own. Yeah, try to publish that book today. <laughs> Put that message out there in the headlines. You're not your own. But for Christians, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So you see how he thinks the fact that he has our souls that our spirits are united to his, that our hearts are his, that by default, the body is all his as well. That because of that union, the body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul can say to the Romans, so don't give your body as instruments of unrighteousness. That's one way to see your body. It is an instrument. It is this outer form that's you know, united to your inner person, and it's to be used as an instrument for righteousness. And so you'll see there another diagram where it kind of has the, the heart now sort of encapsulated by a physical body so that now what's being expressed from the heart 
are sort of holy feelings, holy words, holy actions. We could put other words there, feelings, words, actions, but those are just, sometimes when you think about how the mind and the cognition part gets expressed, it's often through words, through sentences going on in our minds and that come out of our mouths. And so many of our affections are gonna be expressed through feelings and emotions, and that's how the body tends to experience them and express them, or actions the things the body actually does. And so now you're, the body is this instrument that both experiences the world around us, that you're not able to, okay, hear these words if your ears aren't working. And then those words go in to the mind, into the heart, and the quality of the heart, the nature of the heart is what's gonna do stuff with those words. And then produce words that are then gonna be expressed out through a mouth that is physical. So the body is this medium, this instrument, this part of who you are that most experiences and expresses. And so what God wants is for that also to be submitted to him, but because the heart is submitted to him. Yeah, turn to Matthew 15. Another great passage on this. Hopefully one of the things you take away from this semester as we walk through all this is just how much scripture there is on this topic. How often God talks about all this. Which is why the idea that the church and the believer and those with the scripture, that this isn't really about people. If you really want to understand people, you need to go to sociology and psychology and psychiatry and to the human sciences. I just want to say nothing's further from the truth. Nobody understands people better than God or writes more clearly more helpfully, more wisely about what we're really like. That doesn't mean there's no value in those things. There is, but it's more for illustrations, for provocation, for filling in details and gaps, for putting other sorts of words to it. But it's certainly not, we've got substance here, so much substance to understand what we're really like, who we are. Matthew 15, one through nine, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat? You know, and so many mothers over the centuries have quoted those very words to their own kids for different reasons, of course, right? There are sanitary reasons to do this, but this isn't why the Pharisees and Sadducees are bringing this. This is a spiritual reason. They think there's actual spiritual wrong here. Why don't your disciples wash their hands when they eat? And he answered them, oh wow, this is hard hitting. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Oh, you bring tradition, I'll bring God's word. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. This is something the Pharisees were doing, that they were the religious leaders, they had a house, they had property, they had money, they had all this stuff, and their parents would be in need and need care, and they would say, you know what, mom, dad, I wish I could help, but this is all devoted to God. Now, they're using it every day, but since they're religious leaders, they think, so this is all part of God's work as they eat their food as they walk around with their money. And so they don't take care of their parents and they hide that under the guise of religious devotion. That that's what they're doing. And Jesus just calls them on it right here. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, of that little thing you do, 
you have made void the word of God, the explicit commandment of the Lord. And he says, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's a theme through scripture. He's quoting even from Isaiah. In vain do they worship me. Vain means empty, void. Their worship is empty. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's something you never want to hear from God. That you teach as doctrine what is actually your tradition. That you actually tell people, thus says the Lord, when it's actually your preferences (laughs) that you're sort of pushing around as his. That's what they're doing. They sort of constructed a sort of life and religious life the way they wanted it that suited their purposes and then taught that as doctrine from God. But then the key word is there in verse 8. This people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's the nature of hypocrisy, right? Where the heart and the body are doing two different things. Either the heart is sort of God's, and we say it's God's, but yet the body is walking in unrepentant sin and immorality. Or the external, the body, is sort of doing all this sort of religious stuff, but the heart is far from that's the nature of what hypocrisy is. That's what Jesus is going after here, that God, God wants all of it, wants both of them. Devotion from the heart through the body. And section B here, and that's what the gospel really is aiming to produce in us. And that's why the gospel aims primarily and firstly at the heart, not just body. This is one of the things that a lot, every false religion on the whole world, by the way, misses this. That they think, okay, the way you get reconciled to God, the way that you lead a holy life, the way that you end up in heaven, whatever that heaven is later, is that you do these religious steps in a certain way that are right. That you don't do that, that you do this, that you walk through these rituals or these traditions. When really the Christian faith says, no, you have to have a whole new heart. God has to intervene and give you a whole new heart in salvation. And that's what the gospel is aiming at. The gospel is the story of God's work in redeeming and reconciling his people through Jesus Christ. And that this redemption and reconciliation is aimed firstly at the heart. Because again, how many here have gotten a new body already? You look down, every morning you wake up and go, wow, glorified. (laughs) Or do you get up and go, oh, this is getting worse every day. Yeah, we can all look and go, yeah, this body is the same old thing. And it's going down, not up. But the heart is being renewed day by day. And so it's clear, okay, God's work, but he's redeemed you. He's reconciled you to the Father. You are justified by faith in Christ. You're, you're saved and being saved and will be saved. So clearly the, the work the gospel is doing right now, the primary work is inside you. And there's a day coming when you'll get a new outside you. And a new heavens and a new earth and all of that. But this kingdom that is coming, Jesus said, the kingdom's here. It's among you because the king was there. And the work he was doing was in redeeming hearts. That's what the gospel aims for. Ezekiel 36, it's one of the promises of the new covenant. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I'll make a new covenant. I'm going to write my law upon their hearts. But the Lord wants our hearts. 
And because of indwelling sin and unbelief, it really is the last thing that we want to give. That's why grace is so necessary. Because the last thing we really want to give is the heart. So I love that story of Naaman in 2 Kings when Naaman the leper and there's a servant girl from Israel that's in his household and she makes a comment one day, oh, I wish that my master could be with the prophet in Israel and he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman's like, wait, what? So they send news to the king of Israel and they send Salmon or Naaman with, him, or with that news to say, hey, heal this guy's leprosy. And the king is like, what are you talking about? See how he's picking a fight with me, that he wants me to heal this guy? Elisha gets word of it, sends word to the king, says, send him to me. So Naaman comes to Elisha, comes to his house there on the hill. Elisha doesn't even come out. Just Gehazi, the servant, says, yeah, go wash seven times in the Jordan River and you will be cleansed. And the point wasn't the water, as, we're, as you find out as the story goes on. The point was, believe this word. Believe this means that God has provided for you, that you would bathe in Jordan's waters, bathe in the waters of Israel, because even that's a picture of Christ who's coming. He's the waters of Israel. But that's the word. Just go do it. And remember what's Naaman's response when he gets this news. He's angry. It's like, are not, you know, was it Thyramar or Farpar, the two, the two rivers of Syria, are not these greater rivers of Damascus? Don't we have better rivers there? And you remember what his servant said to him, to Naaman? He said, if the prophet had given you some really hard thing to do, wouldn't you have done it? Like if Elisha said, okay, stand on your head for two hours and then go run up that mountain, grab this branch, run back down, and gave him like 48 steps that were really hard, Naaman would have goes, okay, I'll do it. Because that, what does that have the illusion of? Yeah, this, this has got to work. Like, oh, this is so hard. Surely this will save. That's the illusion of false religion. Is that if I feel it physically, if it's really difficult then this must be pleasing. When true biblical faith, it's the very opposite. And the servant said to Naaman, but all he said is go washed and be cleansed. It's like, Naaman, are you out of your mind? So it says he goes and he bathes seven times in the river and he comes up and his skin is like that of a baby. And it wasn't because the Jordan River was so attractive and the water was so great. It was all symbolic. It's just so hard to realize this, that's what God wants is a heart of faith. He can use any of that stuff. It's just there's something in us that's inclined to, but I want to make it hard. I want to make it difficult. I want to feel it so that then I know I'm doing it. He must be happy with me. Look how much I'm sweating. He must be pleased. Look how much I'm bleeding. He must be, look how much I've sacrificed. And he goes, no, I just want you to trust me. I want you to hear, to, to go to Christ and believe. And be saved. Yeah, Second Corinthians five. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's it. Not a program. Not a strategy. Not nine steps. It's a message. It is to be heard and believed, trusted upon, a person. Yeah, implications. 
I think implication one is, I think, firstly, it's just a personal focus for us. So we'll look at personal focus, ministry focus, missionary focus, or missional focus. The personal focus is, okay, worship from the heart. As opposed to merely going through religious motions, just showing up to church every week, attending prayer meetings, having a quiet time every morning, not breaking the law, dressing modestly, living an externally tidy life. Again, all fine, all wonderful things, but only if they arise from a heart that is captured by grace. Only if they arise from a heart that is in faith, that is trusting God, loving God, adoring. Again, it's a question we need to ask ourselves, why am I here this morning doing this? When we stand up to sing this morning, okay, why am I singing? As we hear the word, as we pray, why am I praying? Is it from a heart that loves God, that is thankful to God? That doesn't mean there aren't going to be plenty of days where it's a struggle, where it's hard. But that really is the struggle, though, isn't it? To come with our hearts broken, to come with our hearts humbled. And in many ways, that's what he'd rather have, is that we come, and it is a struggle, but we come in faith, that we worship in faith, but that we realize that what we're giving him is our hearts in it. You know, Matthew 6, verse 1, starts with, beware, this is Jesus in Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. If you turn to Matthew 6 a little, or for a moment, And some of you may have headings there in your Bible, in Matthew 6, like a heading right over verse 5. Who has a heading over verse 5 in their Bible? What does it say? It says the Lord's Prayer. Who has a heading over verse 16? What does it say? Fasting. How to fast, right? Who has a heading over verse 19? Yeah, possessions. And and even verse 2, it's... you know, some, some Bibles have a heading over verse 2 that says giving. And I think it's wrong for us to think that this is a passage just about giving and prayer and fasting. When really the, the point of it is in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And so he, he says, therefore, when you pray, be careful that you're not praying as a performance, but rather you're actually talking to God in devotion. When you, when you give... Be careful that you're not giving to impress other people, that you're not giving to impress yourself, but it's a true offering of faith to God. And when you fast, be very careful that you're not fasting so that other people will see you and be impressed and hear about it, but rather that it's something that you're doing that God knows about and that it's to God. So even there, what Jesus is even getting at, it's not, okay, make sure you pray and fast and give. No, it's, hey, make sure God has your heart in it. Make sure these are expressions of your devotion to him and not just a shell of religion. So I think there's a personal focus there for us. There's a ministry focus that is words to the heart as opposed to merely delivering casseroles or praying for physical healing or alleviating financial burdens or just kind of organizing a a killer potluck. Again, all fine things. All good things to do in churches, but only when they're submitted to and for the purpose of ministry of the gospel to hearts. That's the point of the potluck. That's the point of taking the casserole. That's the point of 
even praying sometimes for the physical. But we always go, but Lord, your will be done. Your response to this prayer to heal the physical may be that I die or someone else dies. But Lord, may you be glorified in it. What he's after is hearts. And so ministry to other people is primarily about words to hearts, encouragement, exhortation, comfort. And finally, missional focus. Where the mission is to call to repentance and faith for the forgiveness and reconciliation of hearts through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as opposed to merely trying to alleviate poverty or build orphanages or dig wells or develop better government and economic systems. Again, all fine things, good things to sort of do. But for us as believers, only when they're subordinated to and for the purpose of gospel proclamation. Calls to repentance and faith. Yeah, we see it in John 6, where Jesus is going to feed the multitude. And he's trying to make a point that I'm the bread of life. That's his point. That's why I'm going to feed all this food to you. I'm going to give this to you. It's not so that you'll just be full. But then they're going to return to him after that, seeking more food. So he feeds the multitude, and they come back later, give, me, give us more food. To which Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, that is, and want to believe, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God has set his seal. He's going to go on to say that, okay, I am the bread of life. I'm the point of all that physical stuff. So I think it has great implications for how we think about missions, how we think about evangelism, what we're really trying to do is go after hearts. We've got some time left for questions, for comments, for discussion, for, yeah, anything. Any questions? Yeah, yeah. so I, I'll try to briefly kind of summarize some of the questions. The question is, okay, there's, yeah, there's different religions in all the world that order desires and think about desires in different ways. And some that, okay, the problem is itself desires and having any desires. And some that think, okay, the desires are the problem. You've got to get rid of those. You've got to even put the desires themselves to death. Um, even sometimes the body is seen as evil in that. But yet, in contrast, you know, the Christian faith in Scripture Kind of says it's okay, it's not about getting rid of desires or getting rid of all those things, but, but getting new desires, having those reconformed. And Jonathan Edwards was one of those that wrote extensively on it that, yeah, that what God isn't after is just to kill your desires or to kill your passions or to kill, but rather to give you a new heart 
which is what the Spirit does when he gives you a new heart by uniting it to Christ and bringing you from death to life. And now you have new passions, new desires, new longings, new wants. And that that's actually what's going to feed into everything else. That's where, and it's interesting, Jonathan Edwards even was someone who believed that the will, that man actually has free will, that you actually have free will. But he thought about it very differently than how Catholics think about it. Who, who would have thought, okay, the will is free to just choose God or not choose God. Free to trust him or not trust him. Whereas what yeah, Edwards argued was that, no, no, it's free, but the affections are enslaved. So you will always, you're free to choose, but you'll always choose what you love. That was Edwards' contention. And so therefore a sinner before Christ will always choose sin. Because that's what is loved. That's what is cherished. No matter what form that might take. And then in salvation, what God does is, yeah, gives you a new heart, new passions, new desires, new affections, so that now you're actually able to choose Christ and to follow Christ. And to, but, then the, but before God actually intervenes, you know, we're not able to because we're entirely enslaved by those desires, by those sinful desires. Now, when he gives us a new heart, that doesn't mean, okay, all sin is gone. There's still now sin in us. Paul's going to say, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, Romans 7. There's a way in which even as a new creature, with a new heart, with a new love for God, that sin still remains. It's just not master of you. It's just not the ruling principle any longer in you. And so that's, that's the thing the Holy Spirit's doing. He's given us a new heart, and now he's part of sanctification is more and more putting that sin to death in us and making us more and more alive to Christ and able to obey him. And that's why I think we have to be patient, merciful, gracious toward unbelievers, where we just realize, okay, they, they can't. And, and until God intervenes, they can't full, obey him fully. And nor could we until God had mercy on us. And put his grace upon us. So yeah, great question. Other questions or comments? Or... Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That. You know, Philippians 1.6, that I'm confident of this very thing. Yeah, I'll repeat the question. So the question is this sense that, okay, at the very bottom as a new creation in Christ, there's this now ruling principle and desire that wants to love God, serve God, honor God, trust God. I think the answer is yes. There's just all these other competing sort of desires of thoughts and emotions that, that are still sort of pressing in. And that sanctification is a process of those more and more being prod into conformity to the will of God in us. And, and I, think that's, I think that's right. You know, Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And the idea is it's this ongoing work of purifying and perfecting until the day when Christ appears and we're glorified and with him forever. And so that's very much what a lot of sanctification is. It's, you know, even in Romans 12, when he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know, that that's what every day we wake up and we have to do that. We can't take, you know, weeks off 
and expect to just coast home, but it's something that we continually give ourselves in faith to him as he keeps conforming us to the image of Christ. Yeah. One more. Could just be a comment, doesn't have to be a question. And so, yeah, the, the question is that in, he will perfect that work in us, and nowhere in there does it say that we have to, you know, cooperate in it. And in one sense, I hear what you're saying, that, that no matter what, God will have his way with us. That's why there's this great, um, there's this video of a man in a mall somewhere, and he's walking to an escalator, he's about to go up an escalator, and as he's going up the escalator, he falls on the escalator. And he starts, have you seen this video where he's rolling backwards? as the escalator is taking him up. <laughs> and, and I had a friend who posted it and said, is this not what sanctification is like? <laughs> we're, we're, it's taking us up and we're rolling and fumbling and falling and, and it's going that direction. So in one sense, I hear what you mean, that, that God's going to have his way. I think in another sense, um, you know, we are meant to cooperate and we are called to cooperate. This is, you know, Philippians 2, that same passage. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's why. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so in one sense, you're right. God is going to have his way. He will perfect you. He will transform you. But one reason he will is because he has our hearts now. And if we're just walking in a pattern of sin we will be convicted. We will feel the weight of it. He will bring us eventually to repentance and to contrition. And there's just things that when you're alive to him, you can't avoid anymore. And therefore, he says, since he's the one who works in you, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's not, okay, work it out so that you can be like Jesus. It's, no, work it out because he is making you like Jesus. Because that is what's happening. And so what a great reason to, to cooperate in that work of sanctification. sanctification. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we do yeah, thank you for this work of salvation in us and pray that you would take more of our hearts, more of our thoughts, more of our affections, more of our desires, more of our volition, that our bodies would be wholly yours, that our souls would be wholly unto you, that though it is a struggle, though sin still remains, though repentance is still needed, though faith is still needed, we don't see you. But our confidence is this, that this work you've begun in us, you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.